calendar on this uh, and had planned on that ahead of time. Uh, the first week, I talked to you out of John chapter 13, and specifically these two verses, about what does it mean for our church to be a loving community of believers. So look at the verses if you would. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you, and I know that the New King James says, have love for one another. But it's possible to feel love, but never demonstrate it, never show it, never say it. So I think it's a better way in the Greek to translate this, and I know you could find it in other scriptures, but I just want to make it clear. I think it's better to be able to say, if love you have to one another. It's an active thing. It's not just an ideal. It's something that you actually manifest in your life to people. So my question was, how did Jesus, because he said a new commandment that you love one another as, in the same way, the same manner, the same degree as I have loved you. So how did Jesus love people? Well, that particular chapter, he demonstrated it by washing people's feet. And I had to tell you, I, I'm not all about washing feet. Uh, I just don't prefer it. I don't like it. Leave my feet alone. Uh, but maybe there's another way to show love. And one of the things that it struck me as I was reading through the Gospels is that people, real people with real problems, they were also called in the Gospels sinners. Sinners actually were comfortable with Jesus. They actually liked to hang out with Him. So much so that the religious people got offended. They said He sits and He eats with sinners. Well, i got to tell you, this is a room full of sinners. And Jesus still likes to hang out with sinners. Just like you and I. So I wanted us uh, last week to begin to look at what is it that is inside of us and inside of the people with whom we come in contact that actually causes us to act the way we are. And one of the things that I have come to grips with, and I thought it was just uh, an interesting turn of events, that one of my friends this morning posted on Facebook that his series that he is beginning today is Do Away With Shame. Well, one of the things that has been big in my heart of recent days is the realization that many of us have done things wrong in our lives. We have actually sinned. We've lied, we've stolen, uh, we, we've been angry about things we shouldn't have, we didn't do things we should have done, we have sinned. We've confessed our sins to God, and He's forgiven us. Now when we sinned, we felt something inside. We felt guilt, because we'd done something wrong. So guilt has to do with our behavior. Shame is a completely different thing though. Shame actually deals with our identity who we feel we are inside. And I believe that Jesus wants to deal with our shame every bit as much as He wants to deal with our guilt. So what I wanted to talk to you about last week and this week, finishing up, is the different areas of brokenness or woundedness in our lives that can manifest itself as shame-based behavior inside of us that actually can realize itself in dysfunctional behavior. By the way, the word dysfunction is a very popular term today. And I think uh, maybe a simple, simple kind of definition would be in line. The way in which I think about dysfunction is it doesn't function properly. It doesn't function the way it should. And therefore it is a dysfunction. Kind of like dis-ease is to not be at ease as your body is intended to be. So last week we began to look at it and I went through three of the five wounds or traumas or things that happen in our lives that can affect us greatly, that can even produce shame. The first I talked about was wounds of withholding that you receive in early childhood. That's when there are things that you should have received that you didn't. Kids need love. They need acceptance. They need... Um, they need to know that you value them, that you treasure them. Uh, I used to joke about something, and I don't anymore, because I realized it actually conveyed something that's not in my heart, not right. And I used to say, I liked my kids, but I really love my grandkids. Well, the truth is, I love my kids. I love everything about them. I love who God has made them to be, who they've grown up to be. But I also love my grandkids. And I want 
my kids and my grandkids to know there is nothing you can do to stop that. There's not one thing you can... I don't care how bad you think it is, there's nothing that you can do to stop me from loving you. I might be grieved at what you've done. I might be broken. I might be sad about it. But it's not going to stop my love. Well, there are things that happen in kids' lives that can be very wounding, very hurtful. It could be that there's been a divorce and one or the other parent has left. Or it could be an abandonment. Uh, I was speaking recently uh, with a friend of mine, and at the age of 11, I believe it was, his father picked up and just left. Just left. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Well, that can create a wound inside of you that is very real, that can affect you. And then what I said is, those wounds can affect three things. They can affect how you see yourself, how you see others, and how you see God. So if you've had a wound of withholding where there are things that were intended by God that you would receive, security, love, acceptance, being treasured, if those things are withheld, it can affect how you view yourself. That no matter what anybody says to you, it doesn't matter. Um, I get every once in a while, I get cards uh, from people who write a card and they'll just say, you know, really nice things, way beyond what I ever could deserve. They'll write things like, you know, we just so appreciate you as our pastor. We thank you for the way, you know, you go on, you, you name it. They, they say nice things. I don't save those cards. When people write me really nasty cards, which does happen every once in a while, they'll say, you know, you have the spirit of the Antichrist. <laughs> I save those. And every once in a while, I'll pull them out and read them just to make sure I keep myself in place. Exactly. I agree with Gene. I need to stop it. The point is this, the reason why I said that, is it doesn't matter how much people will tell you they like you or how good you might be, you can't receive it because there's been a wound that almost puts up this barrier to keep you from believing good about yourself. So no matter, you could do ten good things, but this one bad thing, it's like, that's how you measure yourself. Wounds of withholding. The second wound that I gave you, uh, and by the way, all of this is on last week's, uh, I was going to say tape, but that dates myself. Um, Link? They don't even do CDs anymore. Link, is that what I call it now? I'm, you can get it back there with that guy, okay? Uh, if you weren't here for that, he'll help you. I don't even know what it is. Uh, what is it? Facebook. Okay, you heard him. Apparently you go to Facebook and you push some button and it does something. Um, the second wound are wounds of aggression. That's when you get something you don't need, when you don't deserve. And that could be things like uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse, uh, sexual abuse, things that are said, things that are done to you that are very, very difficult and painful. And that can affect your soul in deep places. I have to tell you, growing up in a home in which there was, probably some people would measure it as significant physical violence. Uh, it, it was uh, just, uh, my dad uh, only had, uh, really, a couple of different emotions. One was mad, and the other was, I guess it's not an emotion. It's hungry. Um, a feeling. That was pretty much it. That was my dad. Uh, he only knew that. And so the way in which he expressed himself was by beatings. And because most of my family were sisters, we had 13 kids in my family. Uh, there were a total of three boys. One died, so just two boys. But the other boy didn't come along for quite some years until I was a bit older. And so I was the only boy. So mom and I got the brunt of everything. Uh, put me in the hospital. It was just, it was an interesting thing. But can I tell you, having experienced that, that the emotional and verbal abuse really impacted far more than the physical. Physically, you just kind of get used to it. But when somebody constantly lives with the fear that at any moment things could explode and you don't know why, 
You have no clue. You just know something happened. Maybe I did something. Maybe I didn't. And there's an explosion. You live with this thing inside of you that's constantly afraid that something's going to explode around you. That comes out of wounds of aggression, whether they be verbal, emotional, even spiritual, sexual, physical. Wounds of aggression. The third wound that I gave you was uh, event wounds. And uh, the way in which I explained that to you was telling you a story about a a friend of mine, a young uh, man who was my age actually in school with me when I was in high school by the name of Louis. Uh, Louis went out one day at his mom's request, I believe, to his family barn to get something or to do something. And when he opened the barn door, he saw his father hanging by a rope where he had just committed suicide. Louis went into his own little private world. He couldn't face reality anymore. So he would walk to school holding his book, staring up at the ceiling with his vacant stare. He had basically escaped the horror of this world caused by that one event into his own private world. And it was only years later I had the privilege of leading Louis to the Lord and he received Christ. And then I lost track of him once I graduated from high school and Karen and I were actually at a funeral in Geneva, New York one day and sitting across the table at the luncheon that they had following the funeral was Louis with his wife and his kids. And he had married and done really well. He was a professor at the university or at the college nearby in Geneva. And he had received some healing deep inside. But those wounds that are events, things that mark your life as before and after events, it could be car accidents. It could be a lot of different things, a death in your family. Those kinds of things can have lasting impact upon your soul. Now, that's all available to you apparently on Facebook at some link. So, uh, you could talk to uh, Nick about that later. We're going to carry on. I want to look at the fourth wound today. So if you're taking notes, this is number four. That's wounds of betrayal. Wounds of betrayal. This is when someone with power abuses you in the midst of wielding that power. Um, I don't know how many of you would know uh, Jonathan and Alyssa Evans. Uh, They're a young couple in um, Oswego, New York, where they are working with a pastor and his wife. They are missionary, mission, uh, ministry kids. They grew up with this kind of stuff. But some years ago, they made the decision. They felt like the Lord had asked them to begin to take in foster kids into their family. And so they have different foster kids they've brought into their family. And foster kids are brought into families in order to give respite for perhaps a single parent or maybe even a married couple who just are overwhelmed with life right then, things aren't going well. And so foster parents take them in and care for the children for a while in order to see that the child receives the kind of loving care they need and the parents also receive loving breaks that they need for a while. Well, recently, Alyssa Evans posted this on Facebook and she referenced one of the rules in the New York State Foster Parents Regulation Book. So this is a rule that is actually in their foster parent regulation book. Listen to this rule. Listed under additional examples of unacceptable discipline, it had this. Forcing a child to crawl on knees across a floor strewn with rice is strictly prohibited. Let me read it again. Forcing a child to crawl on knees across a floor strewn with rice is strictly prohibited. Now, let me ask you, why do you think that was in the regulation manual? Now think about it. You've taken this child who needs genuine loving care. Under the auspices of loving care, you bring them into your home and then you abuse that by making them do something ridiculous like that. And how many other things, just as bad or worse. Um, One of the things I hear most about in my travels from broken people, is why they won't go to church anymore. Why they used to go to church, but they won't go to church anymore. Because somewhere, somehow, someone abused power in the pulpit or in a position of authority, whether it be home group, you name it. 
and they just don't want to go to church anymore. You see, when you mingle together wounds of betrayal with familial or spiritual abuse, it like it exponentially takes it off the charts. Think about it. If the person who is wounding you in a betrayal is a family member, like perhaps a father, and that father who is supposed to love and protect you and care for you and watch out for you, that father is also a spiritual leader in the church. Maybe a deacon or an elder or even a pastor. And they abuse that power towards you. How many of you know that can wound you? And that can affect how you see yourself, how you see others. And won't that affect how you see God's fatherhood? So that there are people today who can, cannot, cannot call God our Father who art in heaven. They can't even say that prayer because they've been so wounded by their own father. And the father image has been distorted. <clears throat> Over these last months, I've watched as friends of mine, and most of my friends, honestly, are ministers, missionaries. I've watched as friends of mine used Facebook as a platform for what I would consider to be spiritual abuse. I had friends of mine who are pastors literally say on Facebook, if you call yourself a Christian and you vote for Hillary Clinton, I question whether you're even saved. I had one friend say, it's my responsibility as a pastor to tell the sheep who they should vote for. You'll forgive me, but that's spiritual abuse. We talk a lot about other kinds of abuse, but often abuse can hit right here. I've often wondered in my own heart, how many times have I said things that are honestly, measurably abusive? Now, I work hard at this. I work hard at not commanding people, not telling people what to do, not intruding on people's lives, telling them what I believe the Word of God says, what the heart of the Father is. But I am sure I am blind to things that I have done that have hurt many people. And it grieves me to know that. I have abused power. And many of my friends have equally abused power. Anytime someone stands as a minister of the Gospel in front of their board or their elders or their church, and they endeavor to manipulate people into doing what they want them to do through words, through concepts, when they do that to leverage to their own advantage, to their own opinion, to their own agenda, that's spiritual abuse. Ultimately, my words don't measure up to His Word. And so that if I ever make my words more important than His words, there's a problem. Um, when I first went to Elam back in the 70s, one of the first teachings I can remember hearing was the fact that we are not called as ministers to be merely leaders. We are called to be servant leaders. We are called to serve the people of God. Not to lord it over them. Not to demand anything. Not to put ourselves on some kind of platform. If I had it, I would do it again. I did it once years ago. I don't think I could do it anymore without getting hurt. But I can remember when we used to have a pulpit up there. And I got a chair and I stood on top of the pulpit. Some of you might remember that. But the idea was this. A lot of times we go to these churches and they have these high spiral staircases up to this crow's nest way up top. And the minister gets up there and he preaches down at you as if I'm up here and you should aspire to what I have. The reason I stand here is that we're all on the same level plane. We all come before Jesus the same. I'm not more special than you. I might be called to do this. I think I am. I hope I am. If I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be up here. But the reason I am here standing on this same floor as you is because we're in this together. I've said to you how many times over the years, I've got stuff. Don't ask my wife about my stuff because she can tell you all about my stuff. <laughs> I got stuff. But so do you. 
I've talked with you enough to know some of you got really weird stuff. <laughs> dumb stuff. But it's not more dumb than mine. We're in this together. Because of this kind of abuse, we have an epidemic of people who say they love Jesus, but they hate the church. They love the head, but they don't want anything to do with the body. They love the bridegroom, but they don't like the bride. And sometimes, i got to tell you, sometimes I can understand why. Now, I don't think the answer is to pull away. I don't think that's the answer to any of it. I think the answer is in our woundedness to seek some sort of real healing and to be able to go on together. A minister friend of mine was invited to a family reunion and he told this man in his church who had invited him to the reunion, I'm going to be late because I have this responsibility, but I'll get there late. So this friend had arranged that his uncle, who was quite a bit older, meet his minister friend when he pulled in. So the minister friend pulls in to where they're having the reunion in this park. He gets out of his car. This guy comes up and says, hi, are you so-and-so? He goes, yes, I'm so-and-so. I'm pastor of so-and-so. He says, oh, good. Let me take you over. He takes him over, and in front of everybody, and this actually happened in front of everybody. He puts his arm around him and says, Hey folks, we have a pastor here. You better grab your wallets and hold your wives closer. How many of you would say that that guy probably had a wound somewhere? Where there had been an abuse of power, at least in his mind. We read almost daily of teachers abusing students, of police abusing civilians, of counselors betraying patients. But we don't talk much about Christian leaders betraying their charge and their calling. But you know, one of the things I thought about as I was preparing is it's not just Christian leaders who do that. Sometimes it's Christians sitting out there who in the name of God do some pretty abusive things. I know that some people, and they've told me, maybe it's you, have told me that they feel like I'm sometimes too real in front of people. I, I tell you too much stuff about myself, so it's hard for you to respect me. Well, if the only way you respect me is that I become perfect, then it'll never happen, so you might as well give up now. If the only way you can honor me is if I am perfect, there's a problem. I can tell you this, I would much rather you know stuff about me up front from my lips rather than you later find out about it and try to blackmail me. I'll just tell you right up front and get it over with. Most times, I'm not great. Every once in a while, I might even be good. I'm not sure. But I'm not great. And I'm saying to you up front, I would rather we be real people dealing with real stuff in our lives than put on t-shirts where we continually pretend that we're somebody we're not. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I loved the superheroes. Batman was on at the time, you know. You, you know the real Batman? Da, 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 da. You know that one. Um, I liked Batman, Superman. I mean, Superman. I got in more fights with my sister over the TV over Superman than about anything you could imagine. But I used to dress up. I would put on my cape, get a red cape, you know, a towel, and tie it around my neck. And I'd go up to the roof of my barn and I'd jump off and broke bones that way. But, I mean, I wanted to be somebody that I wasn't. I've come to the place in life where I want to be who God made me to be. Not who I wish I was. I want to be the person God made me. And I want to say to you that um, the reason why I don't want to ever be put on a pedestal is it's a long way to fall. And I get hurt easily. And it's a lot easier if instead of you learning to lift me up, you lift Jesus up. Because he's never done anything wrong. You might not like how he's handled your life, but he's never made a mistake. He's always done everything perfectly. So keep your eyes on Jesus. In fact, Paul put it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'd say the same thing to you. Follow me as I follow Jesus. I don't always do it perfectly but I'm always trying to lean into Him to hear His heart and His mind. Number five. Fifth and final wound. Wounds of prolonged duress. Let me try to explain this with an example. Let's say that one day uh, you're out working with your dad. 
and um, it's a hot day, it's humid, it is sweaty, things aren't going well on the car, he's trying to get it fixed, and he asks you for a half-inch open-end wrench. And so you look into the toolbox and you grab the wrench and you hand it to your dad. And your dad starts to use it and he looks at it and then he turns to you and says, are you blind as well as stupid? What's wrong with you? This is a three-quarter inch wrench, not a half-inch wrench. Can't you do anything right? Now, if your dad said that to you and then later on in the day he came back to you and he said, listen, I need to talk to you about what happened earlier. I was so wrong, and I am so sorry. You are not stupid. You're not blind. You're an amazing kid. I love everything about you. You have amazing gifts and abilities, and God's going to do something amazing with you. I was the one who was wrong. I was the one who acted badly. Would you please forgive me? Now, if that happens to you, the likelihood is that would not become a wound for you. That actually might become something very positive where you learn what it takes for a man to be honest when he's made a mistake. But if that same thing happened, and it continued to happen day after day after day, if that kid grew up hearing that he was stupid every single day, what do you think he will believe about himself? That he's stupid. That's a wound of prolonged duress. Uh, it's not always, by the way, something that is said. Sometimes it can be conveyed with looks, with body language, with behavior. Um, growing up, I was told repeatedly, my name was not Christopher. My name was Chris. The very first time I brought home a paper from school, I can remember I brought home a paper from school, and my teacher had crossed off where I had written the name Chris and had written above it Christopher because she wanted us to learn how to put our proper name. And my mom took that and wrote on it crossed off Christopher and said, his name is Chris, not Christopher. And when I asked why my name was Chris, not Christopher, they said, we didn't want to saddle you with two long names, Christopher and Lanaville, because we knew you would be too dumb to spell them both. They were probably right. Um, <laughs> the reality is, when you're told often enough that you're stupid, you can begin to believe it. I grew up hearing words like this. I just made a very brief list. Uh, no good, quitter, stupid, lazy bum, jerk, and I could go on because some of them you can't repeat in public. Um, I think about the words that I heard growing up and I compare it with how I think and feel and say to my kids, to my grandkids. Um, my granddaughter, uh, Jocelyn, painted something for Karen for Thanksgiving. And she brought it in. First thing she wants to do is to give it to Grandma. I mean, here we are out in the kitchen. We're trying to get the food ready. It's kind of nuts. Everybody's showing up. But Jocelyn wants Grandma to get this painting. What do you think Grandma does when she gets the painting? She's like, oh, this is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. This is amazing. Did you do this yourself? I think about my kids. Um, I mean, when we got married, I didn't know Sikkim. Uh, <laughs> it's when we used to raise dogs. My dad used to train dogs. And if a dog didn't know how to Sikkim when we did a hunt, then we'd say, you didn't know Sikkim. You didn't know what you were supposed to do in life. So I, I didn't know anything about parenting. And I made so many mistakes. But I look at my kids. They're amazing kids, aren't they? Uh, Jennifer, I was thinking just this week, she is becoming more like her mother, her mom's mind, her mom's heart. She keeps track of things. Uh, just amazing. And she also, like her mother, married well. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. She did marry well, but... <laughs> How do I take that back now? <laughs> Let it go, let it go. Uh -huh. And Jeremy. Jeremy got his mom's and his granddad's brains. He's a researcher through and through. He likes to know things. 
but he also likes to teach things, and he honestly likes to help people. I've been so amazed at when he bought this house. I mean, he didn't learn this stuff from me, uh, but he, he will actually dig in and try to fix things. Like his furnace went on him, and he's in there trying to fix it, even to where he's replacing the actual master board on it. And I'm thinking, where do you learn this stuff? But he just researches, and he figures it out, and he does an amazing job. And he and Courtney together, I mean, honestly, I can't think of people who are better parents, and they just do a, a tremendous job. And John in April, uh, uh, Jonathan was our first child, so all, most of my mistakes I made on John. Uh, and so the fact that he's even alive and here, uh, it's all the mercy of God, because I certainly didn't do a good job. Uh, but I think about the gifting, the anointing. Uh, I am so impressed with my kids. I mean, here's John and April with four little girls who are like high energy. The second they walk in the door, they want your attention. And not one of them, four of them. And they all want your individual attention. And yet they manage it. I thought about the fact that um, they were at the Y on Saturday, April, and three of the girls. And I said, well, where's Natty? She's home with Dad. She just wants to sit with Dad and watch some TV. Uh, okay, that's a really cool thing, because I can guarantee you, growing up, I never would have picked to stay with my dad for one second. I got to tell you, I am proud of my kids and my grandkids. I think they're amazing. And then I think about how I was raised, and I think... It had to be that for whatever reason, that brokenness in my dad and mom was so great that they couldn't even let their kids know that we liked you. I never once, never once heard my dad say, you did a good job. I can remember putting calf pens together. I'm talking about wooden slats on a pole to keep calves in. And then my dad coming in and literally taking his foot and kicking them down because I didn't do it right. And then I think about the stuff that my grandkids give us. None here, right? I got to tell you, it's not the Mona Lisa. <laughs> but we certainly tell them it is. I hope that this stuff kind of resounds deep inside of you because whether you like it or not, this kind of stuff defines how you see yourself, how you feel about yourself. Hope it resounds deep inside of you because whether you're a Christian or not, this stuff is inside of us. Um, if you ask me to give one word that best describes me growing up, it would be the word bad because I was constantly told I was a bad boy. Except for now as an adult, as a believer, as a Christian, as a person who's come into a kind of a charismatic Pentecostal experience, holiness background, it's no longer bad. Now it's evil. So that Karen would tell you that largely throughout my life with her, when something had happened, I would say the words, I am evil. Because that stuff got planted in me from the youngest age on. And it's stuff that I battle constantly. Um, I've been in this church for 25 years. And I would dare say that when things got tough for me personally, and usually the toughness was at home, where Karen and I were struggling with stuff. Because we're a real marriage, just like yours are. We don't always agree. We're two strong-willed people. We see things differently. But when things weren't going well at home, over 25 years, I have probably written my resignation letter 25, 30 times. And Karen has to confront what she calls my quitter switch. It's that thing in me that wants to just give up. Okay, it's not going to get any better. And she'll, she'll remind me, no, it has gotten better. We have gotten way better. thousand percent better. So that now, back years ago, we were asked by a counselor, how would you rate your marriage? And I rated my marriage at the time. I, said, I thought I was being reasonable. I said, you know, like a seven. And I think Karen rated it like a two. Something like that. <laughs> you laugh. Now, if we were to rate, probably the truth is I would be lower and she would be higher because she has a better outlook because of stuff that's inside of me. Sometimes she would, not always. Just to be fair. Uh, see, this stuff, 
the reason I'm saying this, this stuff that's inside of us doesn't go away just because you become a Christian. Oh, it's okay, honey. I'm almost done. <laughs> when you got saved, Jesus didn't wave a magic wand and everything just disappeared. You have some real wounds inside of you. Things that happen that have affected how you see yourself, how you see others, and hence how you see God. Now, our woundedness can bring us, I believe, to one of two places, and I I'm, I'm really am drawing towards a close. It can either bring us to a diagnosis of a disorder, like clinical depression or PTSD, you know, those kinds of actual disorders. Or it can bring us, not to a disorder, to a distortion. It's where we're able to function, but we see things through colored lenses that are pretty distorted. Years ago, Karen and I were watching a movie together. Some of you might remember it. Uh, I can remember sitting in our house. It was a movie called The Burning Bed with Farrah Fawcett about a, an abused wife. And I can remember sitting, I can remember sitting on the couch with Karen watching this movie, she is groaning, she's crying, she's just like, can't believe this stuff is happening to this woman. It's such a sad movie, poor Farrah Fawcett. I am gobbling up my popcorn, and honestly, I'm amused by the whole thing. Now, lest you think that I'm evil, I, I can do that for myself, um, I want to tell you what went on in my mind and heart. I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, what's the big deal? What was happening to her was far less than happened to me. So why would you make a movie about this? Why is anybody even talking about this? What's the big deal? What had happened is, because of what had happened to me in life, I looked at life through distorted lenses. I couldn't see things for what they really were because of my own woundedness. So even though we might not end up with a critical disorder, the truth is we all, to some extent, end up with a distortion where we don't see things clearly. And these wounds that I've talked about last week and today, I want to suggest to you they're all through the church right here today. Um, the problem is they're not just in the church, they're hidden in the church. Because we have put more emphasis upon behavioral modification than we have upon spirit-led transformation. We have believed that if people would only just stop it, that everything would be fine. <clears throat> Can I suggest to you that when you try to pretend that everything is fine and it's not inside, that creates a toll of weariness that begins to erode your strength, your energy, and your courage. Um, one of the stats that's out there that has been disputed, but I think stats have this purpose. They can help us to see the possibilities of something being there or not there. But one of the stats that has become very prevalent is that 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month. Now, it's been since proven to be wrong. The real stat is 1,500 pastors leave their churches every month. Some of them leave for good and never come back. Never go into the ministry. Some of them move to another church. But there are a whole lot of pastors who quit every single month. And by the way, when they quit that church, most often, they quit ministry and they never go to church again. I can't imagine how many Christians quit church for similar reasons because of woundedness inside of us that has never been addressed. Um, the good news is that Jesus isn't threatened by our woundedness nor by the devices we've come up with to try to hide our woundedness. You know, the things we've done to compensate. He wants to meet us, and He wants to say to us what, honestly, our fathers and mothers should have said to us. He wants to say to us, I delight in you. 
You are the treasure of my life. Everything that I do has you in mind. I love you, and you can't make me stop loving you. I can't love you any less, and I can't love you any more. I've given you all of my heart. Now, I recognize that for some of you, this whole subject has been awkward, disturbing, bothersome. Uh, I know for some of you, it's like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, if we as believers can't deal with our own brokenness, how in the world do we expect to help minister to people in their brokenness? It's only as we meet Jesus, as I said last week, in the ditches of our own lives that we can help people in their ditches. So, what I want to do very, very briefly this morning is I want to talk to you, kind of give you an example of what it means, I believe, for this to work. So, um, if you could think about it this way. Uh, somebody has a deep wound. Um, for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm going to pick on Ben because I know it's not true for Ben. But let's say, pardon? You can tell me later. Let's say, let's say Ben has a deep woundedness in his heart because his father abandoned him. So that's the wound that we see up in the corner up there, I think. Do we have it? No. One second, she's going to help. Since Nicole did it. I mean, she's the one who loaded, or oh, I think Kathy loaded it on, and Nicole has it ready, I think, actually. One second, breathe. It's okay. While they're getting this all settled, Ben has a wound. The wound is abandonment. So over here is his wound, down here. Okay? He's wounded. He's been abandoned. That abandonment could be for several different ways. Like I said, it could be uh, death. Oh, there it is. Wound there, just beyond the keyboard. Um, it could be death. It could be divorce. It could be just he's absent as a father. He doesn't have time. He's too busy. Too many kids. Whatever it might be. So there can be all kinds of stuff that can create this wound that happens inside of a young boy. So Ben has this wound. How might that abandonment, that absence, make a person feel? Worthless. What might he feel about himself because of this? Shame? What else? Not valuable? What? Guilt? What, what, wait, wait, wait a second. Why guilt? Pardon? Aha! Uh -huh. You feel guilty or shame because maybe the reason he left is I'm not enough. Maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe it's my fault. How many kids who have had parents go through divorce that felt like it's my fault? So you've got a wound. That wound creates lies or false beliefs. The false belief is it's my fault. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough for him to want to stay. That lie creates feelings. Emotional upheaval. Um, things go on inside of you. What, what might you feel, be left with as your feelings inside? Pardon? Anger. What else? Pardon? Not trusting. Pardon? Resentment? Afraid? Frustration? All of those are good. All of those are things that can be inside of us that we feel because we've come to believe a lie. That lie is based upon the wound. And ultimately, that emotional upheaval that's inside of us being afraid. Do you think that's not going to actually manifest itself in somebody's life at some point? We call it dysfunctional behavior. 
But the reality is, it just means I've never learned how to function properly because I didn't have anything. It's like for me, when we got married, I didn't have any good example of marriage to go by. All I knew was yelling and hitting. And so what do you do? You don't know how to function properly. And that dysfunctional behavior can come out in several different ways. Ultimately, it manifests itself in a real life situation. Let me give you this example. One of the things that is a dysfunctional behavior that we're all very aware of in these day and age is pornography. Pornography is dysfunctional behavior. Somebody views pornography, they feel bad, and they go to their pastor and they confess. I, I need to say to you, I, I feel shamed, I feel bad, I feel terrible even having to tell you this, Pastor, but I recently was on the computer for too long and I clicked on a site and then I went on another site and another site and pretty soon I spent hours just looking at pornography. And it became a habit and it just, it's gone on and on and I just feel bad and I'm coming to you for help. What does the church normally do? The pastor says, well, alright, I'm glad you confessed it, but you do know it's wrong, right? Yeah. No, no, no. Do you know it's really wrong? Okay, do you feel really bad about this? Yeah, I feel really bad. Do you feel bad enough to admit to your wife that you did it? Well, do I have to? All right, let's go back. Do you feel bad about this? Yes. Do you feel bad enough to confess it to your wife? And by the way, in this day and age, it could be the opposite, to your husband. Yeah, all right, if that's what you think. All right, fine. Then what we're going to do is we're going to set up a meeting. You're going to confess to your wife. We're going to put filters on your computer. And I'm going to give you an accountability partner who gets every single site you ever click on. And I'm going to make sure you never do this again, you bad boy. And we call that helping people. Can I suggest to you, and I know some of you aren't going to like this because some of you, especially some of you ladies, have husbands who struggle with this. Yes, in a room like this full of Christians, some of you have husbands who struggle with this. Can I suggest to you that porn is not really the problem? It's a manifestation of the problem? The problem is back in the woundedness area. And we're trying to deal with up here. It's kind of like, think of like an iceberg. The church deals with the dysfunctional behavior that manifests itself in real life situations, but we don't ever go back and deal with the wounds that then create this environment. See, I don't think, for example, that pornography has anything really to do with lust. It might create that within you, but I don't think that's its base. Its base is you're a lonely, afraid person. You don't feel like you're good enough for real relationship, and you're too afraid to enter into it. So you keep an image in front of you where they smile all the time, but they don't ever really know you. And it could be so many other things. It could be lying. People lie all the time. They say, well, I'm just telling stories. It's a lie. That's not what happened. Yeah, but it makes me look better. It makes me look funnier. I'm the life of the party. We do all kinds of things to compensate where we feel so broken. But I believe that what we need to do is we need to go back down to the base. And on the other side, where there is wounds, I believe that what we need is deep healing from the ministry of Jesus. We need to let Jesus go back and meet us there in the area of our brokenness. That doesn't mean that he's going to go back and undo what happened to you. He's not going to take away the abuse that happened to you. He's not going to take away the absence of Louis' father who hung himself. But he's going to come and he's going to meet with you in that deep place and say, I can bring healing so that you can actually go on as a whole person. And from that place of healing, we we begin to believe the truth We begin to believe things that He has said about us. Not just what we have come to believe about ourselves. Which then affects our emotions, which gives us peace and joy. A sense of acceptance. And then we begin to walk with a surety of step that is better than what we've ever known before. I've, you saw it up on the screen a minute ago. You know, some people in dealing with their woundedness, use a shield. They put up walls around themselves. Other people use a sword 
to keep people at a distance. Some people are prickly. Some people you just don't ever seem to get through. And moving out of this area of hiddenness is scary. And until you're so tired of living this hidden life that you can't stand it anymore, it's going to feel safer to you. Because it's scary to go towards change. It's scary to confess, to admit what's gone on. But that's the only place for real healing is when we bring it into the light. Some time ago, I was dealing with a real-life situation that I was called into. Um, a husband had had a fall and uh, wasn't found out. He just felt guilty about it, felt ashamed, and called and confessed it. So I went and met with he and his wife, and it was over several days. Uh, we met together, actually several weeks, really. Uh, but we met together, talked through things, what worked towards healing in the marriage. And finally, at one point, though, after about uh, probably, I don't know, a lot of hours together, uh, I turned to the wife and I said, okay, we've been dealing with a lot of things. We've made a lot of progress and we're grateful for your husband's willingness to confess his sin, to repent of it, to break it off, to go on in holiness. We're grateful for all of that. But I'm asking you, what is it that you need? How can we help you? And her response was so interesting. She said, I just want him to be a good boy. And I think sometimes that's what the church does. Let's not deal with the wound. Just be good. Can't you just be good? How many of you parents have ever said to your kids, couldn't you just be good? We do the same thing with adults. Just be good. Just behave yourself. And everybody will be fine. Forget the fact that there's something driving your behavior. Corey Ten Boom, some of you will remember her from The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom said this, The object of your greatest pain can become the source of your greatest blessing if you offer it to God. I have come to realize in my life that God's standards are embarrassingly low. He will take anything if you'll bring it to him, including your brokenness. If that's all you got, he'll take it. And he'll bring healing and wholeness to you. But it starts with being real. It starts with bringing your stuff into the light. Now, I don't mean by that, and I honestly do not mean that, and we won't have that. I don't mean standing up here today and starting to confess your stuff. I've done enough of that already. What I mean is, being willing to admit you have stuff, first of all, that you need healing in your soul. It can manifest itself in so many different ways. Uh, depression. Anxiety. Some of the meds that people in this church take, they're taking because of deep wounds. And I honestly believe that if we deal with the wounds, we might not need as many meds. I'm not opposed to doctors. I'm not opposed to prescriptions at all. I'm not saying stop taking. I'm saying some of the stuff we're doing, we're medicating our pain instead of healing it when Jesus offers us healing. So I'm not talking about standing up and confessing. I am talking about admitting you got stuff, bringing it into the light yourself, just saying, Jesus, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you about some of this stuff. And maybe it also means finding somebody that you can talk to. Somebody who's perhaps of a sort that you can trust, that can hold confidences, that can walk with you. Not so that you can constantly go back and say, I did it again and just don't care. No, but can say, listen, I know your heart. And that's what I'm after. Yeah, you blew it again. But I also know you're a warrior who's fighting to be free, to be whole. You need to find somebody who can stand. Because real healing comes when you stand shoulder to shoulder with real people and bring it all before our real Savior. That's where healing begins. So what I would like to do today, to end today, because this has been a, a bit more of a serious kind of bent to it today and last week, I want to offer you the opportunity to actually come forward and say, before the Lord, I got stuff. I'm not meaning standing up and confess. I mean, you're coming forward and saying, God, I got stuff. 
And I realize my stuff's affecting my life. It's affecting my relationships. It's affecting my job. It's affecting my joy and peace. I've got stuff. And God, I don't want to hide it. I don't want to pretend anymore. I want you to deal with my stuff. I want healing deep within me. And I'm going to ask the elders, if they would, to come on up. And uh, they're going to just line up here. And the issue is not for you to come and say, I need to confess to you my stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not even what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for is you to come up and just stand there and let them know I got stuff and let them just pray for you. It's not going to be long prayers. It's going to be praying specifically that God would begin to shine light on those broken areas and bring healing. And I want to tell you one story as they're coming forward. Um, <clears throat> growing up in Waterloo, New York, which is, by the way, the birthplace of Memorial Day, for those of you that don't know it, the headquarters of minor league and little league baseball to this day. So baseball was a big deal. Um, baseball was a big deal to my dad. My dad was a frustrated baseball player. He wanted to play baseball. He wanted to be a professional baseball player. And then he ended up having to marry my mom. And so that ditched all his dreams. So he decided, even though he didn't really like me, he was going to make me into a ball player. So although we didn't do any other sport, we didn't play basketball because only girls wore shorts, so you can't play basketball. And uh, he liked football okay, but he didn't have me play football. He made me play baseball. And so we played baseball from the earliest age. Uh, I broke my nose when I was like six years old with my dad pitching to me as a kid. Uh, and my dad, by the way, had the most wicked hook because he had shot off these two fingers, so he only had these two on his right hand. And when he would throw it, he had a natural hook that was just unbelievable. It really was. Um, so he was a frustrated ball player, wanted me to play ball. And um, I was okay. You know, I played all right. Uh, I, I made the team without a problem. Little League was a big deal for us going up through. Uh, All-star team. Uh, had a decent fastball myself, never as good as his, but I had a decent one. But I can remember every game, my dad would stand at the end of the dugout behind the fence because parents weren't allowed out on the field. He would stand and he would yell at me the whole game. It wasn't like, you can do it, come on, good job. It was like, you idiot, get down on the ball. Constantly yelling and berating. And that's what I grew up with, playing ball. One day I decided I needed to deal with some of the stuff in my own heart. And so I was actually meeting with a man who is uh, trained in counseling. And he said, I just want you to close your eyes and ask Jesus, what would he like to deal with? Now, I hadn't thought about this whole thing in years. I mean, years. And we're talking about 40, 50 years ago. Nothing. He said, just close your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to light anything that he wants to deal with. And in my mind, and I know I, I could think I'd make it up, but I thought I hadn't been thinking about it two seconds before. It just suddenly came to mind. I see my dad on the sideline yelling at me. But standing behind him, and it, was, it won't impact you, it was impactful for me. Standing behind him in the grandstands, because we actually had grandstands, was God and a bunch of angels with signs saying, Yay, Chris, you can do it. And I have to tell you, something inside of me broke, and I realized in that moment that that had affected me wanting to perform and be the best at anything I could do, to be smarter than everybody, to prove my dad that I could do it, even if he didn't think I could. And that's how I lived my life for much of it. I'm here to say to you today, that I believe God wants to bring healing to deep wounded places in our hearts. Not to bring shame, not to bring exposure, but to bring it into the light. And there's a difference. Love covers, it doesn't cover up. And so I want to ask you, do you have stuff today that you're willing to say to the Lord? I don't want to hide this anymore. And by the way, again, I said it the very first time uh, last week. The fact that you had parents that were imperfect doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're human. They got stuff like you got stuff. Maybe they're still around today. Mine are gone. But my parents weren't bad parents. They just had stuff. They were broken. And they didn't know any better. My dad used to say to me all the time, well, I'm better than my dad. 
And from what I heard, he was. But that doesn't make it good. It's like, okay, you only killed one. He killed four. Good for you, Dad. So do you have stuff that you're willing to say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want freedom in my soul. And if that's you, I'm going to ask if you would, just to be willing to come forward and let the elders, the leaders pray for you. And again, they're not going to be long prayers. This is your opportunity to say, this is beginning a journey for me. A journey. Many moments of time of God bringing healing. So, the altar is open. Feel free. Doesn't matter who you go to, by the way. There's no magic. Father, I thank you for Chelsea and all that she means to you. 